The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this Monday edition of Scorebox. We've got Karen Cho, of course, anchoring from London. You've got me, Steve Sedgwick, here in Stockholm. These are your headlines. So Finland and Sweden make a historic break with tradition, announcing their intention to join NATO in a massive shift in European geopolitics. Sweden's Prime Minister tells me and CNBC the move is absolutely the right one. We think this is best for Sweden and the Swedish security. It's not something against Russia, but it's what we think is best for us. Uh, what kind of retaliation there can be, that's up to Russia and, and President Putin. The G7 warns of a global food crisis, accusing Russia of waging a grain war as part of its aggression in Ukraine. India bans all wheat exports, as Europe's Trade Commissioner tells CNBC, protectionism will only make it worse. Countries are uh, starting to take uh, export restrictive uh, measures, and uh, we uh, think that this uh, is tendency can, which can actually only aggravate the problem. China's economic data disappoints in April as COVID controls take a big bite out of the country's retail and industrial sectors. Meanwhile, the world's biggest oil exporter gets a big boost from soaring energy prices, with Saudi Aramco posting its highest quarterly profit since listing. Finland and Sweden have declared they will formally apply to join NATO, a move that ends decades of non-alignment policy and will shake up the geopolitical map of Europe. Sweden and Finland's decision will more than double the length of military alliance's border with Russia. Finland's Prime Minister Sanna Marin believes the government's decision to upend its defence policy by joining NATO is strong. We have reached today an important decision in good cooperation between the government and the President of the Republic. We hope that the Parliament will confirm the decision to apply for NATO membership during the coming days. It will be based on a strong mandate. Meanwhile, Steve spoke to the Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson as the country announced its own bid for NATO membership. He asked her whether Sweden fears retaliation from Russia. We think this is best for Sweden and the Swedish security. It's not something against Russia, but it's what we think is best for us. Uh, what kind of retaliation there can be, that's up to Russia and, and President Putin. But of course, we, we see that there could be possibilities of cyber attacks, hybrid attacks and, and other measures. But it's, it's all up to them. Well, Steve is live for us this morning from Stockholm, so let's get out to him. Steve, we saw through the experience with Ukraine, there's a real distinction between friends of Europe versus those that are NATO members. So just give us a sense of the developments and whether there are hurdles from here. Karen, good morning. As you know well, I've been coming to this region uh, for the best part of a quarter of a century. I've got a lot of friends out here. I've got family out here as well in Stockholm as well. And I can't underline for Sweden. I know Sylvie's been doing some brilliant reporting about Finland as well. So I'll, I'll talk less about that, if I may, uh, and the changes that Finland are bringing forth from, from their stance uh, towards Russia and towards NATO at the moment. But I'll talk more about the Swedish because 
it's an enormous, enormous strategic change. It's an enormous uh, political identity change and identity of the country as well. You've got to remember, this is a country that totally prides itself on its non-alignment, not neutrality. They're very keen on saying it's not neutrality, it's non-alignment. And that has been the case, not just for our lifetime, not just for our parents' lifetime, but the last 200 years. Ever since the Napoleonic Wars, uh, Sweden has prided itself on this position. In fact, it was because of the, the Napoleonic Wars and the relationship with Finland and Russia, ironically, uh, that Sweden found its non-alignment. It lost Finland to Russia at the end of those wars and of course uh, Finland then got its independence from Russia in 1917 so you need to look at history in order to understand this very important relationship between Sweden between Sweden and Finland and between those two countries uh, and indeed Russia now whereas the Finns have had their their contretemps and, and very very ferocious battles with the Russians in the last century uh, notably in the Second World War where they eventually lost uh, around about 10% of their territory but uh, ferociously fought back uh, a Russian assault as well. The Swedes haven't been at war with anyone or initiated the conflict at any stage in the last couple of hundred years. They pride themselves on that independence and what it means is a, a national idea uh, uh, so that they can be uh, international moderators, peacekeepers. Wherever you go in the world, you see the Swedes involved with the UN as well. So it is a huge change to accept uh, that they will be members of NATO. For the Social Democrat Party, which up until very late last year, in fact in many cases still against it, uh, I would never have thought that there would be a Social Democrat government that would have brought them uh, into the NATO realm as well. So we have to understand the history and indeed the national psyche and why this is such a big change for Sweden. But as you heard from that sound there, uh, I was speaking to uh, Magdalena Andersson yesterday, the Swedish Prime Minister, at, at a press conference just round the corner from me. And in typical Swedish fashion, it was a very low-key affair. But then you had uh, the Foreign Minister there as well, uh, Ann Linda, and you also had Peter Holkvist as well, who is, of, the, uh, of course, the Defence Minister as well. And I managed to catch words with both of them as well. So let's listen to some of the sound there that they had to say uh, about why they're doing this and what they think the kind of reaction is going to be from Russia. First of all, let's listen in to Ann Linda, who I spoke to. She's the foreign minister of Sweden. Well, we have seen how um, uh, Russia is uh, behaving uh, when they are having a full-scale invasion of a friendly, democratic, non-aligned uh, country. And the way that they are conducting their war, it's uh, war crimes, it's uh, on civilians, it's a civilian infrastructure, it's bombing of schools and the hospitals and theatres. Um, and uh, this has made us take the decision that we will not be secure uh, without uh, applying for membership in NATO. But do you believe that there will now be a remilitarization of the Baltic? Do you think that actually there will be a more nuclear Baltic? Are you concerned about that kind of escalation? Uh, we hope that uh, there, will, there will not be uh, an escalation, but during the period of transition before Sweden and Finland get the full membership, there will be a heightening uh, of tension in, area, in our area, and we also foresee more military uh, troops close to our borders and so on and so forth. Sure. M Minister, um Sweden's been working with NATO for a very, very long time anyway. We know that as well. What practically will be different with this membership of NATO, uh, apart from the risks associated with Article 5? Uh, mainly the more deeply defence planning. Uh, that is one of the key issues. 
That was Foreign Minister Anne Linda of Sweden speaking to me yesterday. And of course, it is very naive if people think that Swedish non-alignment equals neutrality. In fact, the Prime Minister was at pains to point out that uh, since 1995, since the EU membership, actually the country hasn't been uh, neutral. Uh, it's been not, it hasn't been neutral, and as indeed it's had mutual defence uh, agreements with various members of the EU uh, for a while. And of course, Boris Johnson uh, has signed uh, a mutual assurance uh, agreement, although there is nothing binding about that uh, in his uh, visit last week as well. In fact, I know for a fact because I know people have been doing it that uh, this country has been carrying out drills with NATO um, air force drills uh, ever since the 90s as well. I, I had a friend who was flying uh, Grippens and Vegans. Uh, with the Swedish Air Force working with NATO going back a long way. So no one should ever think that Sweden hasn't been working with NATO uh, over the last couple of decades or so. But actually, what's going to change militarily? Well, I spoke to Peter Hulkvist, the uh, defence minister, about that. What are the military ramifications for Sweden and indeed the Russian response? What we want is to have some sort of security assurances. And that, can, that means that we can have naval vessels from different NATO countries in Baltic Sea, that we also get help with Air Force, we can have exercises on the Army side together, different countries, and we can also handle uh, cyber threats together. So you talked about the assurances that NATO will give you, but it also has Article 5, which could potentially drag Sweden into a war with Russia. Is that a realistic proposition? First of all, you cannot get five, Article 5 commitments before you are a member of NATO. That is number one. And then number two, the history is that no NATO country have never been attacked. The only, the only attack we have that have opened up for Article 5 is 9-11th uh, in the United States. And uh, then the answer came in Afghanistan. In terms of your journey on this as well, I know you were against NATO membership as late as November last year. How difficult has it been for you, for the party and the country uh, to move to this decision now, from the Social Democrats at least, to move towards NATO membership? First of all, military non-alignment has made the part identity to do. So it's a big change that we have done. It's not an easy process, but we have made it in a very fast process, but it's not easy. And there are also questions about this in the party, but we have very big, um, broad majority, big unity in our party board around this now. So we are very clear that now we go further with application for NATO membership, and that is because of the Russian war in Ukraine and the threat to the European security order. So that was uh, Peter Hulkvist there, and before that, Anne Linda, and of course you heard some sound as well from uh, Magdalena Andersson, the Prime Minister, speaking to me yesterday. What, what is fascinating, there are a couple of things going on here now, and I, I should explain to you where I am, and right in the centre of probably, I think, one of the most beautiful cities on the planet. It's a city I've known pretty well for, as I say, a very long time. You've got the Royal Palace uh, just to my right here as well, but you've got the Riksdag behind me, uh, which is the Parliament building as well, uh, and the fact that it's the Social Democrat government that has put this forward, and we've already had an all-party review uh, into uh, the ramifications of NATO membership, which has pretty much given it the rubber stamp. The Social Democrat Party now giving it the rubber stamp. So we think that the parliamentary debate in this stunning building behind me today uh, will be almost a rubber stamping exercise. It doesn't need a formal vote, of course, on the application process. So we could actually, Karen, in the next couple of days, see the Swedes catching up with the Finns and having perhaps a joint application bid uh, okayed uh, by NATO in Brussels. And of course, there's a very big meeting in Madrid 
side uh, of NATO later on uh, next month as well. Uh, we think, of course, that will be top of the agenda there as well. Of course, in addition to the ongoing support measures for Ukraine. Back to you, Karen. Steve, we're certainly benefiting from your expert knowledge on Sweden this morning. Thank you very much for the coverage. And just a quick note for more on Finland and Sweden's historic bids for NATO membership, you can check out cnbc.com. We're also busy on the earnings front this morning, a Ryanair crossing with four-year results. And let me just give you a few takeaway messages before we get to Michael O'Leary. We've got uh, the company posting revenue at 4.8 billion euros for four-year 2022. This is just a tad shy of the revenue consensus of 4.9 billion, but the net loss uh, better than anticipated uh, at uh, minus 240. Um, 0.8 million euros here. The company, though, unable to give four-year 2023 profit guidance. Just the one line saying that they expect a return to profitability in four-year 2023. Uh, I want to get into the demand story a little bit too in just a bit, but uh, let's uh, get to Michael O'Leary now, who is joining us, the CEO of Ryanair and founding member of the CNBC ESG Council. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Let me just start with the outlook on the horizon. It sounds like you are concerned about some of the developments still COVID, the war in Ukraine. Just give us a sense of what concerns you most as you are reluctant to give us this guidance for next year now. Uh, good morning, Karen. Good to speak to you. Yeah, I think, you, you know, uh, we've produced a set of strong numbers for last year being the second year of COVID. We look forward to the current year with, uh, I think, more optimism uh, I think there will be a strong recovery. Certainly, we're seeing that post-Easter into the summer. Bookings are strong, but at lower prices in Q1. We see strong bookings, but at slightly elevated prices in Q2. But, uh, you know, I think we've been kind of, we've learned from the uh, the, the uh, exuberant uh, optimism at Christmas, and it was damaged by Omicron at the end of November. We looked like we were going to have very strong Easter, and it was damaged by the invasion of Ukraine. So, they, 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 we're still building up the forward bookings. Uh, that process is going very well. In April, for example, we hit 91% load factor, which is the first time since COVID we'd gotten over 90%. So there's no doubt there's a strong recovery underway. But I think we're, we want to be cautious, particularly in the second half of the year. Will there be another variant of uh, uh, COVID? And we also need to keep a wary eye out for what happens with the, uh, the, un, for the unfolding Ukraine situation. Michael, I've got to say I'm thoroughly confused about the demand story. The lines are just uh, competing where you're saying you're seeing pricing up single digit percentage versus pre-COVID, but then still talking about the need to stimulate with pricing in that first quarter. Are we getting into some price sensitivity here? Is that the issue? I don't think so. But I mean, well, I think the issue is we're seeing pricing slightly down pre-COVID in Q1, slight pricing at this point in time slightly up in Q2. Uh, so there's no doubt that there's strong peak demand. But it's fragile, you know, as we're still building up forward bookings, you know, we're having to price down in Q1, we're not having to price down in Q2. But if there's another negative news flow event, as we had with Omicron at Christmas, or we had with Ukraine at Easter, you know, these numbers could change very quickly. And that's why we're not able to give a full year guidance. We do expect to be modestly profitable over the next uh, 12 months. It could be very profitable if everything goes well, but it could be damaged in the way it was with Omicron and with Ukraine if we get negative news flow. Mike, very good morning to you from Stockholm. Look, I'm looking at the disaster that parts of the industry are having on staffing. I've seen changes that... Uh, I, I can't comment on who I took to get here, Mike. You know that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, I, I have looked at your... 
Funnily enough, I have looked at your pricing for a trip to Gothenburg uh, later on, and I have to say, the prices are looking fruity. So I don't know if it's just the routes I'm looking at, but they look very firm to me. But that wasn't my question. My question's more about the, the costs that you're incurring. And I, I was looking at the changes that Delta have had to make in the United States to encourage more staff to get back and cabin crew. I've looked at the problems BA have had and the other airlines have had. Just, just explain to me how tough it is to get staff, to keep staff and to train staff at, at the right kind of cost for your airline as well, Mike. I think there's no doubt that there are numerous staff pinch points, you know, particularly in the UK post Brexit, where you don't have that labour market flexibility. But, you know, we made a commitment during COVID that we would keep everybody employed. We kept everybody current. So we were flying pilots and cabin crew. Sometimes, you know, we'd have a, a once a month just to keep them all current. We haven't faced the same labour disruptions that EasyJet, Wiz and BA have suffered, for example, here in Europe. But, you know, it, it's still very tight over here. We see very little labor market, uh, labor market disruption on continental Europe. We're hiring lots of people, we're training lots of pilots, lots of cabin crew, no issues. There are security pinch points though at airports where they're hiring kind of security, baggage handlers, check-in. There are pinch points at certain airports, most notably uh, Berlin has been, a particularly has been a challenge. But the UK is tough. Uh, the UK mar labor market post-Brexit is very inflexible. It is very difficult to get people uh, to apply for jobs, even in the likes of in the case of Ryanair, where we're paying well above hospitality, well above retail. Um, and I think it's just one another one of the damaging dividends of Brexit. But, you know, we are where we are. All uh, we've seen airlines like BAE yet cancel flights uh, through the summer because they're short staffed. We don't yet. We don't face that difficulty in Ryanair. But it's you know, but it, it's something we manage on a daily basis. Yeah, and I have to say, I've, I've done a lot of travelling so far this year, and I would say London looks just awful to get in and out of at the moment. And I don't know if that's the airport's authority problems or BA problem or whatever it is, but uh, real problems. But I want to talk about the other major costs as well. And Mike, I know you operate and are continuing to buy some of the most fuel-efficient planes out there as well. So, so kudos to Ryanair for that as well. But your aviation fuel costs must be absolutely through the roof as well. Just explain to us what your hedging policy looks like at the moment. Funnily enough, see that we're in a very we're in very good shape on the fuel hedging. You know, we continue to hedge fuel right through uh, COVID. At the moment, we're 80% hedged out to March 2023 at under $70 a barrel. So we have a huge advantage over almost every other airline we're competing with in Europe because of the strong hedging position. I, I think there's no doubt, though, at the moment, if there's continued uncertainty in Ukraine and with energy uh, supply, we're facing higher oil prices into the summer of 2023, but it's more than 12 months away. What we can confirm now is that we will go through this summer very well hedged on fuel. There will be no fuel surcharges in Ryanair. It is inevitable there's going to be fuel surcharges among the legacy airlines in Europe this summer. There won't be in Ryanair, and I think that gives us a huge competitive advantage, and it means we can continue to offer low fares into the post-COVID recovery. Michael, can I just get a line on Boeing? I know that you're catching up with them in a couple of weeks. So what are you hoping to achieve here, and, and what sort of orders do you anticipate over coming years? I think, you know, we've been very disappointed with the performance of, certainly on the commercial side, Boeing management the last 12 months. I saw some commentary recently, you know, that Boeing management has lost their way. And I find it hard to disagree with those sentiments. Uh, they've been late on the aircraft deliveries. We've heard nothing from them on the MAX 10, despite the fact, you know, we, we broke off the negotiations with them last September. Uh, you know, Boeing need a management reboot, certainly on the civilian, on, on the aircraft civilian side. Uh, they need to get some management in there that's going to resolve the uh, the aircraft delivery delays. 
and sort out the production challenges facing both not just the Max, but also the Max 10 and the, the 787 as well. Michael, thanks so much for the time this morning on the back of the numbers. Uh, Michael O'Leary Pleasure, with us. Karen. Good to talk to you, Steve. CEO of Ryanair and founding member of the CNBC ESG Council. It's great to catch up with you, Michael. And let's uh, push on and tell you what's coming up after the break. The Chinese economic activity data out today falling more than expected in the month of April as COVID lockdowns weigh on industrial output as well as consumption. We're going to get to that and then take a closer look right after the break. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. It was a wild week that we wrapped up stateside. The Dow snapping a six-day losing streak to put on uh, 466-odd points, or almost 1.5%. We had more gains, too, concentrated around the tech sector. The second day of gains for the NASDAQ, and a very strong rally, 3.8%. In fact, it was a little bit like what we've been talking about, the amount of noise we're making on markets to effectively not move very far. And you may recall the deep falls we had on the FANG Plus stocks at one point as they wrapped up the trading week down less than 2%. Other areas of the market at those suffering steeper falls. I mean, the banking area, for instance, uh, the, uh, the spider fund for the KBE down 3.5%. So by the combination of the week, it was banking stocks that had shed more ground than technology names, despite, again, the concerns about much higher interest rates and what that means for valuations in the sector. A uh, big bounce uh, we saw in, in terms of some of the big moving stocks to the upside. Worth noting that we did have Apple as one of the big contributors. Again, as we talk about these market leaders, when they are gaining, we do get some momentum back in these big major indices and of course the flip side when they're moving to the downside one of the big negatives was Twitter as we saw Elon Musk effectively put that deal for Twitter on hold uh, that was one stock that uh, was still suffering in the tech space in terms of treasuries a quick look at uh, the trading that we have for the start of the week 2.90 so we're still about 10 odd basis points off the three percent level we did note some steepening of the yield curve friday session 2.58 we were perched on the short end and to the dollar the dollar has been king for many weeks now and the morning session we remain on the back foot for sterling and euro we're at 122.45 on sterling drifting off by about a tenth euro 1.04 where we're trading uh, dollar is weakening versus the safe haven japanese yen it is uh, having a bit of an edge on the Chinese currency, though. So mostly a stronger greenback story again morning session as we kick off the trading week. Taking you to the Asian markets and uh, the early picture here is slightly positive on the back of that Wall Street lead. But it does feel as though some of those gains, the optimism that uh, was really flooding across from those U.S. markets late session has evaporated somewhat thanks to the China picture today. As we take another look at the demand story, and you can see the Shanghai Composite down four tenths of a percent. So the latest here, China's economic activity fell sharply in April as widespread COVID-19 lockdowns weighed on consumption as well as production. Industrial output fell 2.9 percent 
but worse than analysts had anticipated, while retail sales posted an 11.1% decline. Let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, the number's disappointing today, and we continue to see restrictions, so no doubt investors trying to weigh up what lies ahead as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the policy response as well, Karen. Good morning to you. Some shockingly weak data that you had on your screen there out of China this morning, certainly showing the extent of the damage that this lockdown heavy zero COVID strategy is having on economic activity and how it certainly is holding that back. We did see certainly on the consumer side of things, uh, the retail sales really feeling the pain there with that sharp contraction of around 11%, far worse than what the market was expecting. So certainly uh, the consumption picture being weighed heavily on by these lockdowns and these COVID curbs. Of course, you had most of Shanghai, some 25 million residents locked down, confined to their homes for most of April. And so we also saw these partial lockdowns in other cities around the country. So that all really weighed on the consumption picture. We saw things like auto sales down some 40 plus percent, uh, catering down around 22 percent and those consumer goods down around 10 percent. And the jobless rate of course, of course, is important to look at because that does feed in to the consumption picture. That actually climbed to 6.1%. Uh, that was the weakest in around uh, two years. Of course, no doubt that will pose a big challenge to the government, which is looking to keep that below 5.5% uh, for this year. And we do know that this is a big focus now for the policy makers, really trying to stabilise uh, the employment situation, which has really been severely hit as well by these lockdowns and these COVID curbs. The government is looking to uh, create around 11 million jobs this year, but they have called this job situation complex and severe. Now, the industrial output was actually a big surprise to the downside. That actually contracted as well. The analysts polled by Reuters were actually looking for uh, just a smidge of growth there. So that just goes to show the profound impacts that we are seeing that these lockdowns are having, not just on the consumption picture, but also production and the supply chain chains as well, which just goes to show uh, that China perhaps can't rely on the manufacturing side so much as a growth driver right now. And just very quickly, we saw fixed asset investment uh, actually growing, but it actually slowed down from the first quarter. Uh, and certainly there has been some suggestion that the government is very much counting on the investment side of things as a growth driver at the moment, uh, relying on the fiscal side of the equation to really try to shore up that economic growth right now. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.